This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Heavenly Father, you who loved us, you who made us, you who called us your children, we pray this morning as we open up this letter of 1 John that you help us to understand your word. Help us to hear your call for us, your commands for us, and help us to find assurance as well as we hold on to the certain hope that Christ will come back. Father, you know where we have been in the past week. You know where we will head in the coming week. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you will help us, that your Holy Spirit will draw our hearts to you, that our minds can be engaged with your word, and our hearts will be softened and be willing to respond rightly for your glory. All this we pray for Christ and your name. Amen. Now, my wife told me when uh, my f- daughter went on the first time for a mission trip to Batam, that the, the pastor there looked at her and said, this is um, Andrew's daughter. And when I went for a haircut, I see a lament in the hairdresser and says, your son's hair points in the same direction as you. I wonder if you have similar experience where either your children or yourself where people identify the children and parent similarity and resemblance. Sometimes it could be the nose, the eyebrows, the features, the skin color, or sometimes it is the mannerism that says, hey, are you somebody's son or daughter or the other way around? Now today we come to a passage that speaks about Christians who being the children of God bears the resemblance of God, our Heavenly Father, and His begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. To this passage, when we look into it, it is not about earning our way into heaven. Rather, for true Christians to show evidence and have assurance that we belong to the family of God. Now, last week, if you are here, we are told of the Antichrist who came out of the church, but at the same time, they are also trying to lead God's children astray, chapter 226. And so today's passage begins with a call for them to hold on to Christ. In chapter 2, verse 28, if you have your Bible, look at it as I read for us. And John says, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Now the day will come when those who claim to have relationship with God but deny Christ, their confidence will melt away and they will be shamed. But they will not be the children of God. The children of God will continue to remember their family identity and will be confident on the day of his return. Now John says that if they know that God is righteous, they will recognize that God's children are to be like him. Now before John jumps in to explain what it means to live like the heavenly father using very absolute terms, 
he first reminds the church of the powerful truth that God actually loves the church. And it is God who first called the church his children, those who are Christians who believe in Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, in a world that sells us the idea that we determine our identity and we earn our status, John refreshes the church memory that it is God's lavishing love that calls us his children. It is God who first loved us and drew us in. It is not because we were good that he decides to love us. Now at this point, we may wonder why is life still such a mess and difficult when God's children are living in God's world? Well, if you look on the next few verses, it points out two reasons. First of all, the world actually doesn't recognize God. And because they don't recognize God, they don't recognize that you are children of God. That's the first thing, why life continues to be a struggle. The second is this, that we are not fully what we are meant to be yet. No, do we have the identity? Are we given the identity? You can bet that we have. But have we received that perfected life? Not yet. But it will come. You know, in the Greek mythology, there was this creature called the Medusa. Do you know what the Medusa? This, this creature with hair, they are like venomous snakes. And if you look at her face, you will turn into stone. Now, if you look at today's passage in verse 2, John says that God, Jesus is so gloriously pure that when he appears and when we see him, we become perfected. Now, this is what we are told in the gospel. In the gospel, when the lepers are around, people steer clear from them because if you touch a leper, you become unclean. But not so for Jesus. When the leper touched Jesus, they become clean. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ while he was on earth. But it is no longer like that. He is now in heaven in his full glory that is unhindered. And when he comes and when we see him, the world and what the world can promise, the jewels the world promises, they become dust and dirt. And what you see, the unhindered glory and purity of Christ will make you realize that what you have wanted all your life is all there all the time. And on that day, we will be pure and we will be just like Him just by looking at the full glory and unhindered beauty of Christ. On that day, when we set our eyes on Him, we shall be like Him, verse 2. So for that reason, all who hope in Christ's return today, who wears the jersey of God's family, we will not live as the world does, but we will purify ourselves just as He is pure. You know, we, we know we will not be perfected now, but we'll pursue it anyway, because that's where we are heading towards. We'll pursue it because the longing to live a holy life now it's an expression of the hope of all who are waiting for the perfection on that day. It is an expression of what we are longing for in the day to come. Now, in practical terms, it may mean 
that on a regular basis, you and I, we will have to seek to put away things that are not pure. Now, our selfish desires cause language, temptation for greed, for lust, pornography, anger, hatred, bitterness, envy, gossips. When they come up, we are to put them back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sin, to receive forgiveness. Because while we are on this waiting room, the Lord Himself taught us the Lord's Prayer. You remember that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And goes on, forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of those who have sinned against us. As we wait for the coming of the kingdom of the Father, we will not drown ourselves in mud, but we will clean ourselves in preparation. Now the motivation that spurs God's children to do this today is in verse 3. It says that our hope is in Jesus' return. If our eyes are on that, on his return, our lives will be prone to steer in that direction. The question for us today is, do we have this hope in Jesus' return and promise to make us clean? Because if we do, says John, then we will be eager to purify ourselves before our Father. So with that as a motivation, verse 1 to 3, John now takes his readers back to his point about living rightly as God's children from verses 4 to verses 10. Take a look at it. Here's the picture of our world, actually. There are really just two families in this world. One is run by the devil. The other is run by the Son of God. Now, those who are under the power of the devil, they sin. Look at verse 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And meanwhile, those who wear the jersey of God's family, they follow the older brother, Jesus. Look at verse 5. Jesus, the Son of God, who appears so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So this is what we have. We have two families that are as separate as oil and water, and they do not share the same DNA. And there are at least five reasons mentioned from verse 4 to verse 10, where John persuades the church that we are to live a righteous life. Let's, let's take a look at this five briefly. In verse 5, again, John reminds us, he says, Jesus has taken away our sins. Now what Jesus has taken away from us at the cost of his own life we are not to be too quick in putting them back because he has removed that at his cost. Against verse 5, Jesus has no sin. You know what the Bible tells us? It tells us that when we believe in Jesus, we are in union with Christ, that we are in him just as he is in us. And he who has no sin means that we who are now with him, we are no longer to have the same relationship with sin. Perhaps in the past, we were good friends but it's not the same anymore. Verse 8, Jesus came for the very purpose of destroying the devil's work of rebellion. And so we must not align ourselves with the devil. No, when sin masquerades itself to be light, behind that, 
It's the devil who wants you to align with him. And we must not do so. And look at verse 7. We're told that those in the other camp, especially the Antichrist, that is those who deny Jesus, they are trying to lead God's children astray. But we must not be led astray. You know, we see plenty of posters in Singapore. Everywhere you go, your leaves and everything, you see the scammers. Be careful of scammers. Now the Bible tells us one thing, one thing about the devil. He is the most powerful scammer you can find. Because he promised our first fathers, Adam and Eve, that they will be like God. And then he delivers death because they were taken away from God. And likewise, we are always promised heaven when temptation comes. You know, the, the devil offers us the delicious fruits of down-putting envy, the self-righteous anger, the click-forming gossips, the mouth-watering lust, the self-glorifying pride. No, these fruits look delicious and they promise heaven. But when you bite into it, it tastes only like rotting flesh. Because that is the only thing hell offers. But it always looks tempting because he is the greatest scammer that the world ever knows. Because he invented it, in a sense. John's warning, do not be led astray. The fifth point in verse 9, we are told that God's seed remain his children. Now what does that mean? It means that when we are saved by the blood of Jesus, you know, God's DNA, his character is now in us because we are spiritually transformed to be God's children. Now these are the reasons as John puts in to persuade the church that we are to live righteous. You know, all these reasons, explain John, are why we are to do right because we are God's children. It's not to earn our way into heaven, but because we are already given a place in his kingdom. No, we are with team Jesus. We are not with team Satan. And so verse 10 summarizes it in quite an absolute term. It says this, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother and sister. You know, up to this point, if we have been hearing John, we'll be desperate if there's a Q&A to raise our hand and want to ask him a question. And is this, does it mean I have to be sinless? Does it mean if I fail and fall into sin, I'm no longer a child of God? Because he used such absolute terms, we're desperate at least to ask, what if I am not as righteous as how John puts it? Well, if you look at how John has been writing his letter, it is clear for one thing, John has never meant that we are meant to be sinless. Otherwise, he would contradict himself because right at the first chapter in John 1, uh, 1 John 1, verse 8 and 10, John already writes that anyone who claims to be sinless, who claims to be without sin, we have deceived ourselves. In fact, we call God a liar. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, John is clear. We are not capable 
to be sinless by ourselves. But nevertheless, he continues to use very absolute terms that God's children do not sin. Why does he do that? I, I think it's this. He is bringing out the identity and the nature of God's children, not our capability to achieve it. He's bringing out the point that that is the nature and the identity of who we are in Christ, not saying that we are capable fully to do it. No, in absolute terms, we are called to live out our identity, and when we do fall, he says, we, we do not make excuses. We do not say, I know it's just a small sin. It's, it's not a big deal. I know some people have done great sin. There's no excuse because all sins, big or small, are sin to God. He wants to make a point that we will not give sin a way out to say it's not too bad because it's absolutely not allowed. But at the same time, he says, when we fail, we have one who knows our weakness and is able to forgive us so that our relationship with sin is clear. It's not gray. Consider some daily examples. You know, can, can a soccer player, while he's playing accidentally or in his callousness, kick the ball to the opponents or even score his own goal? Unfortunately, yes. But should he? He shouldn't. Or perhaps let's think of the other way because when he kicks the ball, someone has to make up his mistake. And we know that when we have blunders in our life, when we sin, someone does that for us. But it means that we will not carelessly or intentionally keep kicking the ball to the opponents or keep having our own goals because it doesn't matter. We have a super player who always fix things up. It doesn't work that way. Because if we keep doing that, the question is, which team are we on? Or consider you are a vegan. No, can a vegan accidentally or at some point in their weakness eat vegetables uh, eat, eat, eat meat well they do eat vegetables eat meat well absolutely especially if you're at a men's conference that say let's meet and you go there as a vegan you're tempted by all the delicious meat and you can fall but if you are to eat meat every day breakfast lunch and dinner and say i'm a vegan no vegans will think that you are one you are the only one who thinks that you are vegan but not the rest and that's the same for us. No, when, when sin robs us of our confidence and, and we, we turn to God, God is glorious and we truly repent to Him and turn to Jesus, He forgives us. But John's point is this. We do not, however, just hold hands with sin and enjoy that friendship, thinking that it's going to be all right. If we have persistent sins in our lives, we do need to repent a hundred times if necessary, if you know what I mean. If it's persistent and you ask for forgiveness and you fall again, do it a hundred times if you need to, but be persistent about turning from it. We must not give up and follow the ways of those who keep on sinning at some point without shame or ignoring God's word without fear or encouraging others to do likewise because you know what? doesn't matter. You'll be all right. It is not all right. Now, those who unrepentantly treasure sin rather than Christ, according to John, are with the devil. But not so for God's children. We are like the roly-poly dolls. You know roly-poly dolls? If you push them down, they will come up. And no matter how we fall, even in sin, we will come back because we want to be upright. 
Because the base that holds us is not ourselves, is not air, is by the dense blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such that no matter how we fall, we want to come back in because that is what we are in our identity and our nature when we wear the jersey of God. Because God's children look to their future hope to be like Christ. You know, now as John goes on in the first section, he transits now to another evidence to show who are God's children. He says this in verse 10. Verse 10 put it this way. He says, Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Now, one of the evidences that we are God's children is by our love for other brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that are difficult, because that's God's family DNA. Now, again, we come back to the two families of the evil one and of God. John writes this in verse 12. He says this, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We know the account of Cain. If you read Genesis, it's right there, chapter 4. The account of Cain is a very sad one. Now, Cain was the first man, the first person that was born to Adam and Eve, to this world, from human parents. But he was also the first murderer in our human history. You know, the count goes, the time came when Cain and his brother Abel, they were making sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God because God sees his faith. We see that in Hebrews 11.4. But of Cain's sacrifice, he did not accept. And Cain was furious. He lured his brother to the field and there cold-bloodedly murdered his brother. That day, a quarter of the world was murdered. And when God came and asked Cain, Cain, where's your brother? Cain snapped at God and says, Am I my brother's keeper? John says, Do not be like Cain, who belongs to the evil one and murders his brother, because his own actions were evil and his brother's righteous. No, his evil did not begin on the murder, but when God sees his offering, was not given in faith and righteousness. And because God rejected his offering, it grew and manifested into hatred and murder. Now this is a sobering warning that Moses gave just centuries later. Moses in Leviticus, he said this in Leviticus 19, he says this, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus himself, in Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now the question is this, why is love so important and hatred so dangerous in God's family? Now it comes back to the two teams. Because those who hate a brother or sister exhibits the behavior of those who are of the devil's team. 
John says, it should not be surprising if you're a Christian, don't be surprised that people will hate you for doing good. No, be it at work, at school, in public, in private. No, perhaps you choose not to forge a document, not to cheat in class, or not to just gossip with the gang, or badmouth a boss, a colleague that everyone loves to badmouth. No, perhaps it is to disagree respectfully with the shifting cultures with regards to gender and identity. Or perhaps it is you trying to share the gospel, or merely just standing up as a Christian and refusing to compromise. It should not surprise us, John says, that people will hate you when you try to be good. But this should never happen within God's family. Do not be surprised that the world hates you, says John. And then verse 14, he says this. He says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's a difficult verse there. What is he trying to say? I think this verse does not mean that if you are loving, you get to go to heaven. But I think this is what it says. Loving is the opposite of hating, which reveals that they are God's, they are not God's children. Now, why does John remind the church about this? Because, you know what, you and I, in our imperfection and imperfect condition, we are drawn to behave like that at times. We can love most brothers and sisters, but there might be a few that we find it really hard to love, and we say, well, majority is fine enough for me. But in our imperfection, we may behave like team devil, perhaps in a more subtle way. Perhaps there are times when we should be happy for someone who has done well, but we get envious. Or a brother and sister gets praised and we are not happy because we didn't get praised when we work hard. They just did one thing and they get praised. Or perhaps to be divisive in church where we say, ah, I don't really like this person and there's this gathering of that. And I don't like that person and there's a gathering of that. Now when such situation arise, John's word calls out to the church, stop. Stop and recognize who is behind all of that. It's not God. And recognize these are the ways from team devil, not team Jesus. Now those who are with team Jesus, who are God's children, do not hate like the world, but love like Jesus. Look at verse 16, this famous verse. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You know, the world may hate you for loving, but love anyway. Love anyway because, especially your brothers and sisters, because that is how Jesus loved us when he laid down his life for us. You know, to those whom Jesus died for, we have no rights to actually hate them because Jesus had loved them and died for them. You know, we are called to love and where possible, reconcile. It's not easy. I'm, the Bible never says it's easy. John never says it's easy. But John says that is part of the DNA. That if we refuse it, it, it gets uncomfortable. We struggle with it. Now, 1 John 3.16 is a beautiful extension of the famous John 3.16, which says, and we have read it just now, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now the evidence that a person is a 
child of God is reflected in his or her love for brothers and sisters in Christ. For no one who received Jesus' love can hate another whom their Lord and Savior paid with his blood. Now, now in practice, is it possible that we grieve over strained relationship because of sin? Absolutely. And unfortunately, that, that happens. And we need to seek God's strength for reconciliation and for forgiveness, whichever side, as much as possible. It is never saying that it's easy. Now, is it possible to struggle to get along with someone just because we are both pending perfection and we are both rough ages and it, it's, it's just half? Again, it is possible. In fact, many, if not all of us, do face it at some point in our lives. But are we allowed to hate? John's answer is no. Do we struggle? Yes. But we stay with hate? We can't. Instead, we are called to love sacrificially. Now, the great order that John reminds us is this, to be like Christ, verse 16. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. No, but as, as our experience goes, it is one thing to say that we can love and die for a brother and sister, really another thing in practice that we do it. You know, there's this um, young mom who complained to her friend. He says, you know, my husband, when we got married, he says this. He says, I will die for you if there's this incoming three-tonner truck. I'll push you aside and I'll stand there and die in your place. And then she says, I wish I could exchange that for just an extra pair of hands when he come home to take the toddlers and feed them so that I can bathe. You know, it's one thing to say with words, I will do this. But it's really hard when you get into action. You know, some of the young parents might be nodding their heads and say, yeah, tough. No, John brings home for his readers and asks these words. It's not easy, but this is the word it says. Verse 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need, but have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. No, it will be terribly hopeless. If Jesus was in heaven, he looks down at us and he says, guys, I love you. But you know what? It's really uncomfortable for me to come down, to suffer, and to be murdered by the ingrates whom I've created. I'll prefer to stay up here and just tell you how much I love you. You know, if, if Jesus was to do that 2,000 years ago, there's not much hope for us. No, it's great to hear that love, but it's not going to bring us to heaven. We'll be heading to hell. And he did that. And it was costly. And that love becomes a mark that's in his blood. That when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, it also becomes a part of who we are. We're not perfect and it's difficult but it is still a mark, according to John. This mark affects our words more than that. It invades our calendar, invades your wallets, your homes, your lives. And, and just to be careful, this command is not a license for a person to demand from the other. But this command is for us to love another person. Now, it is not an easy command, and we do need to pause and think of our own lives, and perhaps even as a church, that we need to reflect on our love. Now, do we bear inconvenience to ourselves in order to meet the needs of others in our lives? 
Now, do the love of Christ govern the way we use our money, use our time, use our leave, use our energy, our holidays, our home to meet the needs of brothers and sisters? Now, these are tough stuff. Be it in church, be it locally, be it overseas. Now, as the holiday season draws near, we'll be into that, that cycle again where we will be buying gifts to people we like or don't like and they will do the same to us. We'll have festive seasons and we'll celebrate with our families. Perhaps that is the time where we think, are there areas that we could actually care for someone who actually needs? It could be a financial need. It could be an emotional support that's needed or protection from harsh environment. You know, one of the greatest things or invention that social media has, you know, it has plenty of bad stuff, but one of the good things it has is that it helps us to see where are the rest of our brothers and sisters doing in their life, in their Christian walk. Because we are actually living in a minority place where we have financial security, we have pol- political stability. Most brothers and sisters in Christ do not. And the social media actually help us to see them in some way that we can say that we will pray for them or we would actually give to them. Um, it's not easy, it's not uh, comfortable, but that is what John calls us to do, to intentionally love those who are in need. You know, perhaps we could include someone to our Christmas party at home, to the year-end dinner, just bring that person along who is Lonely, we, we find that if they, we bring them along, we're going to have more time to have to engage with them and less enjoyment, but do it anyway. Now, I remember with great shame, this occasion a few years ago, it was Chinese reunion dinner. I was there with my family, a small unit, and my dad brought this um, foreign student into the family at Chinese New Year reunion dinner. My first instinct was, you know what, I really prefer to just be with the family, to let my guts down, to just chat about stuff, rather than to have this lonely person who was obviously apologetic to be there. But the Lord reprimanded, uh, reprimanded me deeply <laughs> as I sat there with him in front, eating dinner, how I failed to love, put love into action. And I had to repent of my sin as enjoying my renewing dinner as I'm reminded of the inconvenience that Jesus had to bear to bring a Gentile and sinner like me into his reunion dinner. It was not fun for him. And that was a reprimand for me. I don't know if you have reprimands in your life, but I do. No, it's never convenient to model after Jesus' love and we will fail many times to do right. But that is the DNA placed in the hearts of God's children. And when we seek to live out this love of Jesus, we'll find ourselves deeply inadequate. And so often, your heart will condemn you as you fail again and again. As our love is intermittent, sometimes it's inconsistent, and sometimes outrightly just unloving. Now, David Jackman explains verse the very difficult verse 19 and 20 this way, and I would like to quote him. If you look at verse 19 and 20, this is what he explains. says this, no, Like a judge would discern something in the prisoner which he must expose and sentence. Our hearts, our hearts judge us. We alone know our own inner motives and how often our love for our brothers, perhaps especially for a particular brother or sister, fails far short of what it ought to be. No, our hearts know things about ourselves 
that are known to others and their condemnation, unlike the accusation of Satan, is not false. No, our hearts, if we belong to God, will judge us rightly. It does. But yet in the midst of that condemnation by our hearts and our struggle with this real accusation, Christians and children of God, we can find comfort in knowing that God is far greater than our hearts and He knows far more than we do, verse 20. Now here's the point. God will not find an excuse for us because He knows the reality of our hearts. He knows our inadequacy and our, um, our struggles to love perfectly. But God also knows deeper than we do. He knows if we do have a genuine love to be more like Jesus, that we actually love our God. You know, verse 19, it says, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Not even as our hearts has rightly judged us at various occasions, sometimes a few times a day, our hearts cry out to be more consistent like Jesus. No, our heart's condemnation, unlike the devil's, does not bring us to hopelessness or destroy our assurance, but it does the opposite. As our hearts condemn us, that we are called to turn back to God and see that God is greater than our hearts and we know we belong to Him. Do you remember the account of Peter? The Apostle Peter, when his heart fails at the most crucial time. You remember that account? We hear it all the time. On the night before Jesus betrayed, you know, everyone, Jesus says, you're going to betray me. And Peter says, I will not betray you. I will, I will die then to deny you. And shortly after he denied Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Peter's heart condemns him rightly, and he should have killed himself. But he did not. What saved him was the love of Jesus who knows his heart. You know what Jesus said to him before all this happened, before Jesus died, before they denied him? Jesus said this, it's in Luke 22, 31, 32. He said this, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Now, the love and the comfort of Jesus was there when Simon Peter's heart condemns him. For Jesus knew his heart better than he did. He knew Peter would fail, but he also knew Peter did love him. And so Jesus will enable Peter to stand up and turn to love his brothers and sisters after the greatest failure that he can ever do when his heart failed. The relentless love of Jesus will have its effect on our restless hearts if we are God's children. That our restless hearts, we may turn away, but the love of Jesus will pull us back so that we will, in his relentless love, start to grow more and more and more like Christ. So verse 21 comes in. It says this. Look at verse 21 and 22 together. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, 
now we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. Again, David Jackman writes this, and I quote him. He says this in about 21. Look at it. He says this. I do not think John is saying in verse 21, some Christians never have a condemning heart so they can have confidence before God. Rather, his meaning is that when we deal with our condemning heart on the grounds of God's love, truth and love, even though it recurs a dozen times a day, we can become sure that the Lord accepts us in spite of all our faults and that we can therefore come to Him in prayer. The only way we can come to God in prayer is we are confident that He will hear us. And it will not be by our intermittent love, but by our recognition that we are His. How do we please God? John says, by believing in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and wanting to obey His commands for us to love one another. So dear brothers and sisters, as we come to a close of this difficult passage, uh, we come back to John's big question for us today. The question is this, how do we know that we are God's children? How do we know? How do you know you are God's children? And this is how we know when we identify with God as our Father and we want to live rightly, and when we believe in His perfect Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to love rightly. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but this is who we are. And this is where we want to be. Now, as we do that, verse 24 closes with these big words. This is how we know. In fact, it has been happening in this whole chapter. Verse 10, verse 16, verse 19, here 24. John has been saying again and again to answer this question, this is how we know. And 24 says, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Now, so as we exercise this evidence of avoiding sin, of living God's truth, believing in Jesus and trying our best, and wanting to love each other. And when our hearts condemn us, we turn to God, finding assurance in Jesus, and have confidence to pray to Him. God's own Spirit, He will give us the confidence that we are genuine children of God. And so we close with these same words, but said by Apostle Paul himself in Romans 8.16. He says this, The Spirit Himself will testify with our spirit that we are God's children. May we ask God to help us as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to a difficult passage of 1 John. The absolute makes us fear that we have failed. But God, you have reminded us that you call us to be sinless, to pursue purity, to live righteously, to believe in Jesus, to love like Him. And when our hearts condemn us, that we turn back to You to find comfort and confidence. We know that all this sounds difficult, but we know that it is because You have made us to be like You. So Father, in our imperfection, as we long for our perfection, we pray God that Your Holy Spirit will strengthen us so that as we respond to You day to day, that your spirit also strengthen us to know that indeed we are longing for Christ more and more, that we are indeed your children. And when we fail, that we know we have advocate our Lord Jesus Christ who defends us till we come back to you. 
All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.